Hi, everybody. This is Jose Formoso. Thank you for listening to the El Progreso podcast. We're excited you're here. I just wanted to note that the following episode was recorded while we were still calling the show the Tequeria podcast, in case you are confused by some of the references inside. Other than that, there should be no content differences. Since we're here, I do want to ask you for a favor. Please follow El Progreso podcast and myself on the social network of your choice. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Pandora, and the other pod networks. It really helps us continue doing the show. Thank you, and see you at El Progreso. And welcome back to part two of the premiere episode of the Tequeria podcast. If you listened to the first episode, you heard my conversation with young UCSF doctor Luis Rubio, an ER physician treating mostly black and brown patients with coronavirus at San Francisco General Hospital. We talked about the reasons why the virus is still so prevalent and spreads easily, as well as why it has negatively affected our Latinx essential services community especially hard. If you haven't checked it out yet, go to the first episode and please listen. For this part of the episode, we will talk to Naya Sarate, a member of the Tequeria.org community and a rising star in green tech. And we'll finish off the two-parter with a shorter conversation with Mr. Cumbia, an artist who has been traveling Mexico and the U.S. for years and finally hit it big when the pandemic hit worldwide by creating a catchy song all about our favorite quarantine activity, washing our hands like our life depends on it, and then actually making it really danceable and fun. So let's get started. Now we're on with Naya Sarate, an entrepreneur and inventor in the electric motor and power and energy distribution industry who owns and leads her own company called Continuous Solutions. She is based out of the Portland, Oregon area. Naya, it's good to hear from you. First, can you tell me how you and your family are doing during this crazy time? You know, it's been a really interesting time and I don't know, I've been processing pretty much nonstop from the first time that I heard about the COVID virus in, in China. And it was alarming then. And now that it's in our country, affecting the economy and all of my friends and family and myself, it's daunting. I'm in my house. I'm completely quarantined. I've been quarantined for the last three weeks, um, doing the best that I can to run my company remotely. And I'm hopeful. I'm trying, I'm staying positive uh, every day. I have a routine. I'm exercising. I practice a lot of meditation that helps me to stay grounded in the reality of everyday life and the necessity to plan for the future. So my family, you know, they're, they're doing well. My father, was laid off and my mother's still working. My brother is, you know, tr he's a freelancer. He works from uh, project to project and a lot of the projects have been frozen. A lot of my friends that are entrepreneurs are really looking forward to the CARES Act package to make it through this hard time. So I was very nervous when, when I first started the quarantine In fact, there's a lot of tears and a lot of processing of what that's going to mean for my life since I'm very social. The whole month of March, I was supposed to be traveling from one event to the next uh, for conferences and speaking engagements. 
and everything before my eyes just completely crumbled. And it was um, not nearly in comparison to other people and their companies and what they have going on. But I think emotionally it really hit me hard to, to realize that there's nothing I can do about it. I just need to basically embrace the situation. Can you tell me more about your family and how they're dealing with this situation? Yeah, so my father is an electrical engineer. He works primarily in foundries, and he was working at a company probably about three months ago that completely shut down. They're in Michigan right now. And and then he found a new job at a parts fabricator for the auto industry, and the auto industry has ceased operations because they're working on ventilators and basically being part of that supply chain their company basically laid off and and shut down the foundry. So he is so rock solid. You know, he's from Bolivia. He can hold it down in terms of just staying calm in crisis situations. We were talking the other day and I was like, Papa, aren't you scared? Like, this is serious. And he's like, Naya, you know, back in Bolivia, there's been many times where we couldn't leave the house because... We might get shot because there's a revolution going on in the streets or the food shortage supply and we didn't have enough to eat and we had to figure it out and we made it through that and we're going to make it through this. So he's utilizing his time really wisely. Every time I call him, he's you know right outside riding this bicycle He's staying healthy. He's trying to keep his immune system up. Anytime that he has like these type of moments, uh, I look to him and he's just doing a lot of work on himself during these times. So it's a nice model for myself. My mother is in the pharmaceutical industry and her company needs to continue producing drugs and they have pivoted to making hand sanitizers and cleaning products for the hospitals. And your parents are still together? Yeah, they're together. They're still in the same house that I grew up in. And they love routine and schedule. And they are just riding it, riding it in the same way. Like they're as close to before the COVID virus as like the same schedule. So they live in rural Michigan and Michigan is getting hit hard, but in the rural areas, not so much. So they're able to keep a pretty strict schedule and routine. And that's what they're doing. And I have a lot of concerns about economy, looking at the wealth distribution in the city, what it's going to mean for quality of life for many people. And I'm privileged that I have to worry about this. Whereas like my mom is just like head down, work, 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 and just do it until there's no more work. (laughs) That's her mentality. That's how it's been since I was a child. And I look at that as like kind of a role model for me. You're developing an in-wheel hub motor for electric vehicles, and you've received some press notices for it. Tell me about your company and how coronavirus has affected it and how it has affected your employees. For example, is your funding okay? Are they okay? Yeah, so I have four 
electrical engineers that are doing in a capstone project in their senior year at PSU. And then I have three MBA students who are doing their capstone project at Portland State University. I have one full-time electrical engineer and then two part-time workers that help me with marketing and uh, PR as well as internal administrative work. So we're quite small. Our group is, is small and we're looking to expand and grow. It has been a struggle in converting everybody to a remote working situation. I haven't laid anybody off. I haven't even thought about it. Our company is working off of Department of Defense contracts. And so we are very lucky to have a stable contract in place. Now, my my electrical engineer and I, and also my my UX designer employee as well, we meet every single day in the morning. I have two separate meetings with each one via web conferencing. And it's really just like a, I think they call it like a stand-up meeting where we we talk about what we need to do for the week on Monday. And we write out a list. And this has been going on for quite some time in our company, but this is now being done remotely. So we're using email and using web conferences and just really getting granular on what needs to be done. We assign tasks per person and we chip away at it each day. And then at the end of the day, we have another meeting saying what we did accomplish and what's going to be on the docket for the next day. The story how businesses are changing to remote working conditions is already one of the biggest stories in the world and will continue to be over the next few months and years. Thousands of industries have switched to using rapid communication tools like Slack and Zoom on a full-time basis. And while early thinking said this change might last until a vaccine is found in a couple of years, early research employee data finds those changes may be permanent. Scott Crawford, vice president at 451 Research, a division of S&P Global Analysts said on a LinkedIn post last week that 38% of employees are already preparing to invest in long-term solutions for employees that will expect to work from home indefinitely. For context, right now, 88% of American workers are working from home. The others are the public health and food services essential workers. Some HR leaders are even saying a fully capable remote access infrastructure for their workers who demand it could even be a primary differentiator in recruiting. That's right. After all, there are plenty of talented, successful people who will either not put their health at risk in the office or have found that they can do just as good a job from home without having to deal with the myriad, costly issues of commuting. I know several people in my own family who are managers and will not be going back to the office anytime soon because of health and family reasons. Relatedly, Future Workplaces Impact of the Coronavirus in the Workplace Survey checked in on 350 HR leaders in the U.S. and found that every part of a business, from onboarding new employees to providing better mental health resources, quarterly evaluations, to most importantly, ensuring that communications are secure and private will be reimagined with remote work in mind. All things that us at Points of Presence and Tequeria are also thinking about. By the way, I am recording this podcast five feet away from my fridge, which is calling me with Mexican paletas de limón. Back to Naya. It's been really valuable because I think that there is a camaraderie uh, feeling in the company of we, we need to persist and we need to continue moving forward on our contracts and moving forward on 
our proposals that we're submitting to to the government and the research projects. And these these research projects are not particularly urgent in terms of the COVID virus. We're working more towards electrification of vehicles, of land land crafts, aircrafts, and sea crafts, and converting it to all electric. However, I do believe that this is necessary research and development for the future of the health of our planet and the health of the individuals who are inhabiting this planet. And so for me, it's really important that the research work is continued. My team believes in our work and in our research, and it's a lot of so much, so motivating for me to have a team that is really excited about the work that we're doing. So much so that when we're doing it, we can kind of let the whole reality of what's going on with the COVID virus melt away. And in the conversations that we have with our customers and our clients, as well as our um, collaborators at Purdue University, it's very focused conversations on what we need to accomplish. How are people working day to day? Is there a sense of trying to be as efficient as possible or just to try to get as much done as you can under the circumstances? I would say the people that are working within my company are working harder. They're working more diligently. They're working more focused. I would say that I have been having problems focusing. Uh, I don't know where it's coming from. I think there's a lot of like emotional triggers for me in this moment of crisis and definitely have a support team behind myself to figure those out so that I can perform well for my company and with my company. But from what I've seen from my employees and from my team members is just real, diligent, incredible people. And I'm so thankful and grateful for them. Yeah, so I've seen just empathy, and we have a little bit of a discussion prior, just small talk on how everything's going, what you're doing uh, to keep yourself busy in the quarantine, and then we just go right into work, and it's it's really helpful. What kind of team do you have helping you on the mental health side? Yeah, so I, I work with my therapist who is trained in trauma-informed therapy, and she also has lived in Ghana. She's married a Ghanese um, man, and now she's here in Portland. And, you know, my background is pretty complex in the sense that it's a different culture that I come from, and my experiences are very different living in, in the United States and also traveling abroad. And so I found a therapist who really connects with me on understanding what my priorities are in life overall and then also in building my company. So, yeah, she's been there to to talk about the situation that's occurring right now with the COVID virus, but then also to just reestablish those pillars of priorities within my life, within her life. And, and so she's been a really great support. Unfortunately for the majority of the Latinx population, access to mental health services like the one Naya is getting isn't available. 
According to the American Psychiatric Association, only about 27 to 30% of Latinx seek out and receive mental health services every year. This is about half the amount of access non-Hispanic whites get, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health. Whether it's because they have no access to health care, as discussed earlier, or because there is still a cultural stigma in the community around getting help, the situation is definitely getting worse during the pandemic. The Pew Research Center conducted a survey at the end of March that one in five adults have had an adverse physical reaction to the outbreak, a mindset that experts say potentially expands the number of people who will be significantly affected mentally moving forward. The Kaiser Family Foundation, in a similar poll, found 45% of all adults say life under COVID-19 has had a major impact on their mental health. The same poll found nearly 60% of people were worried about getting the virus because they had to continue to work to make money for their family. And as we noted in the Salud data earlier, the people who need to work the most are Latinx and African Americans in this country. Even for those Latinx that do have health care and may want to get health care, they face substantial linguistic and cultural gaps. If you or one of your friends and family are struggling particularly with the mental health aspect of staying at home or any other part of it, there are free resources available on our website, both for Points of Presence and for tequeria.org. If you want to join the Tequeria Slack community, there is also a channel that deals exclusively with this topic and where people can seek help. Another team behind me that I would say is the Latino Business Action Network, which I just joined in January. And this is a group out of Stanford that is a group of entrepreneurs that are Latino. And we are meeting pretty much on a every two weeks to talk about resources, talk about what the government is implementing to help small business. That's been really helpful to just know that that I can offer support to other people. I can offer, if I read an article that I think will help out a peer, I can deliver that and that's something and that's doing something that's helping out in some way. And helping others is just such a great way to reinforce community. Can you tell me more about this Latino business group? Oh, yeah. So entrepreneur organization I'm a part of as well. And that's been really helpful in just having daily webinars with them, daily videos. We're exchanging different tips and how we ride this out. And then my my friends group are just incredibly supportive. And we Zoom, we have dinners, we really just support each other. And then also my partner that is here with me, thank goodness, in my home. And we are constantly just trying to support each other and figure out what is the best way that will be fruitful during this time in quarantine. The Latino Business Action Network, which is based out of Stanford University, has actually done a lot more than just support its members throughout this crisis. It has taken a leadership role alongside the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in pressuring the U.S. government, including the president and both houses of Congress, to pass new funding for an additional paycheck protection program after the first ran out of money and ended up helping larger businesses, many of them chain restaurants owned by multimillionaires and billionaires. The popular Shake Shack franchise, for example, 
received $10 million in a federal loan to be forgiven if spent on its 6,000 employees. It later gave back the money. Most businesses, though, especially those with way fewer employees, either did not receive any money or are still waiting for their check. According to a letter submitted by LBAN and the Chamber, the majority of 30 million small businesses in the U.S. are either minority or women-run and have fewer than 10 employees and are the ones that have not been helped. They have also not been updated on their status for their loans. In the letter, the group requests prioritizing economic relief for these smallest businesses, which are the ones most likely owned by Latinx, extending the duration of the program, among others. In a fiery video posted on the program's YouTube page, LBAN CEO Mark Madrid perfectly illustrated the urgency of the situation. I'm Mark Madrid, CEO of the Latino Business Action Network, LBAN. Our purpose is to strengthen the United States by improving the lives of Latinos. And at this very moment, we come together juntos in strong collaboration with the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce with not an alarm bell, but with a siren, not a 311 call, but a 911 call. And what is that call? For the administration and Congress to pass the extra round of stimulus for our small business owners across the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Our Latino and Latina entrepreneurs across the U.S. and Puerto Rico, they're not taking a break. They're not recessing over the weekend. In fact, their anxiety levels are just rising. So we urge you to save our small businesses and the jobs that they create. We urge you to pass this legislation and to do it now. After that speech, the second PPP program was passed, but whether it actually helps Latinx small businesses is still to be determined. How did you end up studying electrical engineering and getting into green tech? Yeah, so, well, my background is I was born in Miami, Florida, and my, my mother and father met there when my father immigrated into the United States from Bolivia. And my mother was born in Miami. She's second-generation German immigrant, so her grandmother, my great-grandmother, came from Germany before World War II started. And it was her and her sister who made it through Ellis Island in like 1936, I believe. And I mean, I, I mentioned that because I feel it very strongly in the fabric of who I am and just being, being of immigrants and being born in the United States, but just really feeling the immigrant mentality of wanting better for your life. My mother was an extremely influential human in my life. She always challenged me in academics, really just pushing me to learn more every year. And I remember just spending summers, you know, filling out the, these books she would get me of the next grade that I was entering into. And there would be math and science and all of the core classes. And that would be my goal, finish these books before the school starts so that I can be on top of everything. And my parents paid for private school the first four years of my education, which was a, a huge economic burden on them and definitely understood that as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old until I moved into public school because the economic stress was a little bit too much for my family, especially having two kids in private school. And so 
transferred to public school and in public school saw and found and sought out opportunities to advance my education. So education has been pretty much number one in terms of my focus growing up. And then, of course, the next one was athletics. So my father was my soccer coach, running coach, volleyball coach. <laughs> he would just train me athletically, me and my brother. I think about that because he's a phenomenal athlete. Uh, at the age of 50, he did. He started doing marathons. <laughs> he's and now he's doing like ultra endurance biking where he does 100 mile bike races. And he's just really inspiring. Uh, when I visit him, he's always like, Maya, let's go for a run. And we end up like doing a seven mile run and at the end, like racing each other. And he always beats me because he's very athletic. <laughs> yeah. So I went to college. My first year was really really not good. I was very distracted. I went to college in Chicago. And that was the first time where I saw and lived with other Latinos because I was raised in Michigan in the rural area of Michigan. So the only Latinos that I had interactions with were like the Mexican American third generation or migrant workers that were only passing through for three to four months a year. And then my father and him watching TV uh, in Spanish. And so when I went to Chicago for undergrad, I felt so such a strong sense of belonging. It was just salsa dancing Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, <laughs> speaking Spanish with people from Argentina and Spain and Peru and El Salvador and just having this like, this beautiful, amazing community of Latino peers. And that was really influential for me because that's when I really felt felt it. Like I really enjoyed that experience. But the first year definitely was more social than academics. And then, of course, my second year, I was like, all right, now I need to really like kick it in and like adapt myself to this academic situation. Nice experience in her first years of college, enjoying and taking in her environment, but also struggling in school is not an unusual story. Many students who are the first in their immediate family to go to college face that situation because they lack institutional and cultural support. They don't have uncles or aunts that went through the process of writing a thesis. They don't know at the point at which they should decide on a major or when to consider grad school or internships. It's always starting from zero. I faced the same situation years ago when I attended UC Berkeley, even though it was in the middle of the diverse Bay Area. Thankfully, many universities are working to develop these programs, as heard in this clip from the Institute of Education Sciences or the U.S. Department of Education. There's so much more that happens outside of the classroom once you get to college that is really important for, for students to know about and anticipate. So, for example, how do they manage conflict? How do you respond to microaggressions in the classroom or outside of the classroom? How do you feel part of the community? And I think that that's th those are really important components for students to not just exist in college, but to thrive. From there, I just dove into my academics, got an undergraduate research position with a professor, did undergraduate research, which got me curious that this is an option for my career. I can be doing research and development because this major in chemical engineering allows for it. And I was really intrigued by 
research and development. I had never heard of it. I didn't know that it was even possible until I hit my junior year of college. And that's when my professor said, hey, have you thought about grad school? And I was like, what is grad school? And they're like, well, you get a master's and or you could potentially get a PhD. But basically, you're working on a single research project and you publish papers and eventually you'll write a dissertation or a thesis. And that's grad school. Naya is not the only super talented Latina who took a long time to understand the primacy of graduate school for a successful career. In fact, Latinx people have for a long time suffered from a lack of natural career mentorship, be it from their schools or their own mostly low or middle income class families. Seven out of 10 Latinx undergrads, in fact, come from the bottom half of families with employed individuals in the U.S., according to the American Council on Education, a college advocacy group. The LA Times newspaper, by the way, is where I found that particular stat, and it's done some great reporting on these disparities. And there are even more whack stats on this topic. The National Center for Education Statistics, for example, found that while the number of Hispanic students, that's that organization's race designation, by the way, while their enrollment in college has risen to 18% of all U.S. students, only 11% finished their undergrad. Further, about 12% of graduate students were black and 11% Hispanic by late 2017. And only 7% of Latinos received grad school degrees, according to a major survey by the Council of Graduate Schools and their education partners. And what about faculty? The great mentors and shapers of our sharpest minds. Well, in a study published by the Hispanic Journal of Law and Policy in 2019, it was revealed that Hispanic tenured faculty the doctoral level researchers, is only at 4.6% for Latinx. At the master's level, they were 5%. That's 90,000 brown people out of nearly 2 million. Those 90 would easily all fit at the LA Coliseum at the same time, I think. And of course, they'd be enjoying the sun and a michelada or an aguardiente or a caipirinha or a pisco, an aloja de chaucha, a guarapo, a guaro, anyway... This, of course, doesn't mean non-Latinx teachers can't mentor Latinx people, but it means there are fewer opportunities for personal connections and for shared experiences, which is an important part of helping young people open their minds and considering a different type of life. So I started studying for the GRE. I spent an entire summer studying for the GRE. I mean, I just, I didn't work. I didn't take any classes. I just studied for the GRE. I had a study buddy and that's all I did. And I scored in like the, you know, top one, no top five percentile, my GRE, which I hoped would make up for the first year of my undergrad. Cause it was, it was semi embarrassing. However, this is the nice part about doing really bad your first year and doing 4.0 your last year is that it shows that you improve. <laughs> it's the upward trend, not the downward trend. And yeah, so I plotted out my case and did the cover letter, started applying to schools, applied to Purdue University, and Purdue put me on the wait list. So that was a little bit devastating because that was my number one choice. And then what I ended up doing was just going down, driving the two hours down to Purdue and going into the chemical engineering department 
walking into the first office that I saw that was a professor's office and asked if they had a moment to talk. They said yes. I ended up talking with them for about a half an hour, talking to them. And then my main question or my main objective going into that office was, who is in charge of the grad school admissions? And they pointed me to the right person. And thankfully, that day at that time, the grad school director was in his office, gave me an on-the-spot interview, and then said, okay, you'll hear from me in two weeks. So I waited and was a little nervous, but also really excited that it wasn't a no, and then received my phone call. And that phone call completely changed my life. I mean, that was like a a moment that I won't ever forget. It was the voice of the person that interviewed me. And he said, Hey, Naya, I, I would like to make you an offer. My battery to my cell phone ran out. But I thankfully had my charger because this happened a lot. <laughs> I was on a budget, <laughs> never got it replaced. So I was just running around trying to find an outlet and found an outlet, you know, called them back. And then the offer was, and then I was telling myself, I wonder what the offer is. It's probably like, I need to pay for the whole thing, but they'll give me an advisor so that I can maybe get a master's, but not a master's thesis, or maybe they'll tell me I can only do coursework or something like that. And he, he gave me an offer and he said, Naya, we'd like to make you an offer of a PhD direct route to PhD. We, all of your education's paid for, and we're going to give you a yearly stipend of $23,000 a year. And that was just, I was speechless. Never even knew that was possible. <laughs> but yeah, that's very possible. And it's very common when you go for a PhD in engineering and biology. A lot of the core sciences, they will um, pay for your PhD route and then give you a stipend at the major research universities with the assumption that you're going to publish papers and, and bring back funding to the school research funding. So yes, I did that. And 2010, I finished my master's and uh, thought about maybe stopping there and getting an MBA because I was really interested in starting a company. And I was convinced by my peers, like, you're already this far, you can do another two years and you have your PhD, another two or three years you know, if you're really interested in your work, you should continue. And I was, and so I did continue. And, but meanwhile, I was thinking about what my company would look like, the name, the concept. And that's when 2010 was when I came up with the name of the company, Continuous Solutions, and was getting my network of other PhDs to basically like get excited about my idea. <laughs> it's kind of like this cult mentality when you, I don't know, I, I just like trying to buy, trying to like sell your idea to people so that you have validation to continue working on it. I don't know if you experienced that, but 
Yeah, I do that often. I'm like, yes, and this is my excitement, and you should be excited too. And if you're excited and I'm excited, then we can do amazing things together. <laughs> and so this is this. That's how we. That's how a group from Purdue University started Continuous Solutions. So we've been in business for six years, and we do projects that are pretty complex. And these projects are solicited by the either the army or the navy or nasa and they are projects that are defined by by the agencies and then we develop a a method to get to a solution i think the biggest challenge has been figuring out a way to commercialize go from the r&d process to commercialization, figuring out who the customer, who the client would be, what the product would be. And the government doesn't doesn't really look for a product. They look for a solution. And it's the small business's job to figure out how to get that to the masses, to the commercialization in terms of civilian usage. So that's been that's been challenging, mostly in part because we are our, we are a group of R and D engineers. And it's only been in the last six months that I started to hire the the team to help me to cross the chasm, so to speak. So I guess this, this is a very common problem for many people who do research and development, and it's called the chasm. And if you can cross this chasm, this like, you know, hole of, or like build a bridge over the, the gap of getting from your initial concept project to first buyers or first investors in the product. And that's like a risky thing for the investors is like, well, you know, is there a market for this? Do you think people will buy this? Is this fully tested that we can start selling it on or in any market? And that's been pretty challenging to say the least, but it's a, it's a learning, a learning process for sure. While the business and marketing sites of NIA's continuous solutions moves at a measured pace, the tech built by the young CEO and her staff has been propulsive. In fact, we might see electric transports in the next 20 years using CS tech, including submarines and whatever version of cars we end up getting. One of the company's signature technologies is a torque ripple mitigation algorithm which in layman's terms means a code that controls magnet electric motors and that, based on physics, are considered among the most efficient type of electric motor possible today. This tech is especially important because it helps produce very little torque ripple, or the effect that shakes electric motors while also losing very little power. If the tech scales and is adopted worldwide in the future, we could potentially have even more of these motors powering more of the world using way less energy, while also running machines more predictably and smoothly. Electric motors today, of course, are more still efficient and reliable compared to the 100-year-old-plus bumpy tech known as combustion engines, but electrics still have a ways to grow. As described by NIA's co-founder Nir Vax in Charged, the Electric Vehicles magazine, torque ripple reduction works just like active noise cancellation in modern headphones, by shaping and manipulating waveforms in order to induce silence. How does this happen? 
The algorithm takes the shaking switched reluctant motors, known in the industry as SRMs, and creates an exact wave in one direction to cancel out the noise and movement coming from the other side. In the real world, this could lead to drivetrains of submarines and other types of transport producing almost zero vibrations, making them more quiet and undetectable than ever. Which brings us to the issue of NIA's financial partner in this endeavor, the United States Department of Defense. According to government documents, Continuous Solutions has received millions of dollars in funding from the government, but the partnership has obvious moral complexities. For one, it may potentially make war machines more powerful. For two, torque ripple machines use the rare earth metal neodymium, whose use at scale could, according to analysts and reporters, negatively impact the environment. In a post last year for the technology blog The Verge, reporter Angela Chen noted that about 85% of the world's neodymium comes out of China. And that's a problem because China is a country whose ambition for economic development has, up to now, often outstripped its desire for environmental protection. Chen noted that the production of neodymium in the northern city of Batu has even created a toxic lake. Still, when it comes to choosing her priorities, Naya sometimes struggles even more with how to square working with the DOD while some of its leaders advocate for funding the wall to the south. Yeah, the Trump wall. Naya says gaining a leadership position as a Latina woman in a male-oriented system is definitely important for her. She told me she was once in a DOD meeting of 150 men where she was one of two women. But more important, she says, is getting as close as possible to grabbing the wheel of, essentially, the biggest car making the long-haul drive to a renewable energy future. And that's the U.S. government and its funding abilities. In a separate short conversation after our original interview that I've slipped in here, Naya confronts with the nature of her DOD relationship. So the type of work that I do for the DOD is in advanced technical development. And so what that means is that we're working on future um, technologies about 15 to 20 years out. Talks about the building the wall or changing defunding is done in a very subliminal way. You know, we talk about where the funding is going to come from for our projects and who and when these funds are going to go to. And so with that type of 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 establishment or structure, there's not a lot of room for debating on, you know, politics, especially in the DOD meetings. The DOD meetings that I attend are very focused. They're very deterministic with specific outcomes and actionable items for the the research and technology that's going on. However, in my personal life, I'm very active in the Latino community in fostering relationships and helping people who want to start businesses, as well as giving information that I have from my experience in six years of government contracting. I think government contracting is an incredible source of of revenue. I think that it's also just a a very strong, strong client to have. One of the biggest cognitive dissonance that I had was, you know, how how could I have been raised as a pacifist, you know, anti-war for my entire life and into my adulthood? And then I found myself contracting with the Department of Defense. And that is 
something that was very hard for me to deal with for a couple of years in the initial phases of contracting with DOD. However, military historically has always driven technology. And if we are to get out of the mess that we're in, we need the funding from the government. We need that massive amounts of funding to go into all electric vehicles, all electric ships, all electric aircrafts. This is only going to happen with a long-term strategy in place. And that long-term strategy tends to come from the military rather than corporations. (laughs) So we need a long-term funding mechanism, and that's not going to come from corporations. That's not going to come from a business. It's going to come from the government. So the government have a long-term strategy in moving towards the electrification of all vehicles. And to me, that's exciting. That is something that I would love to see in my lifetime. And we're not going to see it from from corporate entities thinking about the long-term 10 to 15 to 20 years out. And to me, that is, is something that has been a passion of mine. The environment and, and thinking about our energy future and where it's going to be coming from. So <clears throat> for me, the cognitive dissonance was a little bit difficult to overcome in the beginning, but surely I was able to carve out a space of mentorship and paying it forward, bringing in the Latino community as much as I could to what I'm doing to show that, yes, this is possible. You can do research and development and the government does want your work and it doesn't matter your background. You just need to provide a way forward for technology. And that's something that has been just a a beautiful realization that it is possible and and we can do this. I I host a, a quarterly Latino Leadership Lunch, where we invite all of the um, Portland-based Latinos in business and and leaders in their area to come together and share information, to ask questions, pose certain scenarios or situations in which we can all take a look at at, and together and and really just, you know, form a a community that's based around expertise and knowledgeable information and a couple of action-based items that we can take away from it and apply to our own life. So so with that said, I, I feel really good about what I'm doing. I'm very disappointed in the, the rhetoric of our leadership currently, but this isn't our permanent leadership, and we have room to change and maneuver. And I'm thinking about the long-term strategy, the long game. Our leadership currently is only temporary, and we just need to remember that. After the break, we'll return to the issue of how the COVID situation brings up political fears for Naya and how it affects her management style and much more. What is your biggest fear at the moment for yourself and for your business? You know, I I think about worst case scenarios and then I reel it in and I look at the reality around me and then I try to plan so that if that worst case scenario were to happen, 
I have cushions <laughs> to like already in place to like make sure that I'm uh, if it does happen I'm set up in a good way. So my fear is that there will be a I think so it's kind of hard to say out loud <laughs> because it's like, I really don't want to speak it into existence. I just, I mean, I fear, I fear for society. I fear for our country. I fear for our rights as individuals with the coronavirus and what that means for the power that can be given away during these times. That's, that's one of my biggest fears. You're talking about a stoppage of our civil rights, something like that. Yeah, I think it's it's yes, 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 yes. So that's that's yes, that's definitely one of my biggest fears right now in terms of the outcome of the COVID virus is what rights are going to be taken away from us. And when I say us, I mean the the general population, but then specifically there is rhetoric that has been consistent throughout this administration in being divisive and targeting certain demographics. And so it's a fear that when people start to panic about any situation, whether it be economical, whether it be health, public health, what does that mean for the already targeted? And how is that going to be? How is that going to 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 look in the future? So that's that's something that's been on my mind a lot lately. And then just in my day-to-day -day reality, bringing in as much humanity as possible. So if I'm walking my dog and I see a neighbor waving, anybody driving by in the car, smiling and waving, like we are in a very delicate position to look each other in the eye and understand that we're in this interconnectedness that is much deeper than the internet. It's much deeper than this virus. It is humanity. One of your colleagues at Purdue, Manish Singh, described you as being an incredibly talented person when it comes to project management. How are you using your project management background during this time? Yeah. Well, I start as close as possible to myself. <laughs> so being stuck in this house, I have organized and reorganized and scrubbed and washed and cleaned and just gave everything a place. <laughs> because when, when my mind is the most chaotic is that that's when I need to, you know, put everything in order on the ex external and, and then just taking a look at, and taking inventory of what is going well in my life and in my company and in my family has been immensely, immensely helpful to ground and then to tackle the tasks at hand. There is this the strong ability that I have, I don't know where it comes from, but in, in chaotic situations or in crises, I'm usually the calm one. So I'm pretty calm externally, internally, that's a whole nother story, but no one sees it. So <laughs> it's totally, it's uh, totally fine. 
and and then I deal with it in my own ways of relaxation and relaxation tools. But I would say management wise, just trying in in this type of chaos or crisis, being as organized as possible to keep your mind as clear as possible and to really move slowly because nothing is urgent currently. There's no decision that you can make to change what's happening in society. There's no way for us to flip a switch and turn off the virus or flip a switch and turn back on the economy or whatever it may be. It's way beyond the control of any individual, including our president and including the doctor that's in charge of the task force for this virus. So really just slowing down has helped a lot in terms of management. And then, yeah, finding those little bits of inspiration to share with my team members, to share good news that I'm receiving with the businesses and to share share how we're all feeling because it helps in in internal blocks. If there's an in, if there's a feeling that we can't express, that's going to create a block and it's going to create a creative block. So I really try to encourage my team members to talk about what's going on in their life and before we start work so that it allows for a easier flow of information. What has been the most unusual aspect of the situation for you? Has anything specifically surprised you about how you dealt with it, about yourself, or about how others have dealt with it? Well, for me, what surprised me is my first reaction to the situation, which was I... It was like the fight or flight was triggered and my first reaction was to run. I didn't know where I wanted to run to, but I felt like, oh my gosh, I need to get out before the borders close, before I can't leave the country, before things start happening and I just need to get out of here. And like all of like, just kind of like this, like the panic, like not, and it wasn't like a, like a complete panic, but it was very interesting to observe that in myself. I didn't act on it. But it was definitely something that was very unexpected internally. And I think that has to do just with my epigenetics of we are a family of immigrants. We are a family of individuals who have left their home country to look for something better or to have a better situation. And so there is this tendency to want to protect myself and and security and safety and what does that mean and what does that look like and that definitely came out in in the initial phases of the covid now i'm just practicing gratitude on a day to day basis and it's very grounding and it helps me to be like you know what the situation can always be worse and it's going to get better so that was shocking and or surprising for me in terms of other people or just like going outside, what was really unexpected was the, yeah, the, the toilet paper thing. Well, just a crazy scene at a grocery store where toilet paper has been in high demand. Yeah, surveillance video shows a stampede of customers clearing the shelves. Fights over toilet paper breaking out in grocery stores as shelves run empty. I... <laughs> I didn't really understand that. I didn't understand it at all. I was like, why why out of all of the things to hoard or to go after, like why toilet paper? But I guess we can 
we can think about that a lot and there's probably no logical reasoning for that but that was really surprising for me and another thing is the shift in finally breathing and saying wow I guess I really didn't need to fly all around the country for March and life is gonna go on (laughs) I can spend time at home and be healthy and happy and just this this deep understanding of stillness and what stillness can can bring to to health and to connections that there has been a a really beautiful realization that there's uh, something more than just this like, super capitalistic mentality of going and getting after it and trying to win contracts and writing proposals and getting the work done. And, and that is all necessary. It is all necessary. It's how I thrive. It's my creative outlet. It's my life. However, it's not all of life. And that's been a, a really beautiful realization through this and to see families spending time with each other outside and it just makes me think about my family more and what I want for my future and time allocation to allow myself to slow down. So what do you think you're going to do when this is all over? That's a good question. I think I'm probably liking this lifestyle. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I am an extrovert uh, when I'm like in a social situation, but I really, really love my introvert time. So this has been like a really nice excuse to get in touch with my introvert side. I think what I would do is probably go and visit my family, visit my brother and visit my, my grandmother and my mom and my father and my family in Miami. Yeah, it's, yeah, I am going, like, that's the first thing I'm going to do is go and visit my family for sure. And all your family is in separate places, but most are in Miami? My brother's in Denver, Colorado, and my grandmother on my father's side is currently in Miami, along with my aunts and uncles. And then on my mother's side, she's moved very close to my parents. She recently went through, she had like nine heart attacks in one week and had a triple bypass surgery just like in November. So I'm just really grateful that she went through that prior to this, to this virus. (laughs) Yeah, that's a huge deal. And I hope that she can stay healthy through this whole thing so that there's no risk what would you say to people who are listening to this podcast and are struggling with the, the situation? I think that it's important to be cognizant of the fact that nothing, like even if you are super positive all the time on the outside, that's it's it's okay to feel scared in these times. It's okay to feel the uncertainty. It's okay to be worried about how this is going to transpire, but to also be very hopeful for the future and to continue to plan for a future. It's 
it's really important to control your mind. Naya, thank you for being on the show and for speaking to us today. Hope you stay safe back home and talk to you soon. All right. I hope so for you too. This is this has been a pleasure and it was great talking to you. Yeah. So anybody can reach me. I'm available at Naya Zarati at continuousolutions.com. There's one S between continuous and solutions. And I am more than available to do a Zoom call or answer any questions regarding R&D or education or just wanting to connect. I'm here. And now for a change of pace from the serious conversations. We're going to talk to Ivan Montemayor, better known as Mr. Cumbia, a performer from northern Mexico living in the United States. Mr. Cumbia has become an international phenomenon overnight with his song La Cumbia de Coronavirus, which in the last two months has reached the number one or at near the top of Spotify's top 100 in over 10 countries worldwide, including, and I'm not kidding, Russia, Spain, and many Latin American countries. The song, which urges people to wash their hands and stay safe in the peppy, percussive nature of most cumbia songs, could be cynically... I want to start by asking you when it was that you realized that you could perform a dual type of service, providing necessary information by telling people to wash their hands while also somehow softening this really dire situation with a sense of fun. It's kind of a happy song, strangely, because cumbias are happy in general, right? ¿Cuándo te diste cuenta y cuándo decidiste que tú mismo podrías realizar un tipo de servicio público dual? Proporcionar información necesaria para diciéndole a personas que se laven sus manos, mientras medio suavizando esta situación que es grave con un sentido de diversión. Es una canción alegre, extrañamente, porque las cumbias son felices en general, ¿no? Sentí la necesidad de avisarle a la gente que algo malo venía y qué mejor manera que hacerla por medio de una canción eh, que estuviera muy pegajosa. La gente se iba a aprender el coro, pero al mismo tiempo iba a saber qué hacer exactamente para tratar de evitar que este virus se propagara lo más posible. I felt the need to warn people that something bad was coming up and what better way to do it than through a song that is very catchy where people can learn the chorus and, at the same time, understand exactly how to try to prevent this virus from spreading as much as possible. So it sounds like the song works for people because some are actually taking its advice to heart. But you're not the only one that's taking the immense tension of the situation to make light of it, if only for a few minutes. In fact, three out of the top ten global songs in the last couple of months on Spotify engaged with the coronavirus in some way. So what do you think about all of the songs that have come out of the pandemic and about your central role in what is a strange but really interesting cultural melding slash coping mechanism? Parece que la canción funciona porque personas están tomando en serio tus consejos de salud. Pero no eres el único tomando la inmensa atención de esta situación y haciéndola ligera o para que disfruten personas de algo divertido. Tres de las diez canciones mundiales los últimos dos meses en Spotify interactúan con el coronavirus en una alguna manera. ¿Qué opinas tú de todas estas canciones que han surgido de la pandemia 
y de tu papel mismo central en este afrontamiento cultural? Bueno, eh, la canción en primera instancia se hizo para preparar, eso ya lo platiqué. Eh, el problema aquí o el, el fenómeno viene a raíz de que la canción tiene un sabor muy latinoamericano. No es una canción de corte internacional, ni de corte urbano, ni es hip hop, ni es reggaetón. Es una cumbia latinoamericana. Esa es la verdadera diferencia y es el verdadero logro que ha tenido esta canción. Que un ritmo eh, muy cultural de Latinoamérica haya podido conectar y meterse al, al top 5 eh, de las canciones más virales en el mundo. Obviamente estamos hablando de algo muy grande como es el coronavirus. Pero insisto, la canción lleva un gran mensaje y sobre todo prepara a la gente para este eh, tema que tenemos ahorita encima. Well, in the first place, the song was made to help prepare people, to make them confront the problem. The phenomenal success of the song is rooted in its very Latin American flavor. It's not hip hop or reggaeton. It is a Latin American cumbia. That is the real difference, that this song has a rhythm derived from Latin American culture. And now it's connecting with people. It's gotten into the top five of the most viral songs in the world. Now, obviously, we are talking about something that's very big, the coronavirus. But the song not only carries a great message, but above everything else, it prepares the public for this situation that's now on top of all of us. What was going on in your career before the song blew up everywhere? And how much has your life and career changed now as a result? ¿Cómo estaba tu carrera antes de esta canción explotó por todas las partes y... ¿Cómo ahora la ha cambiado tu vida y tu carrera de resultado? Bueno, Cumbia del Coronavirus no es la primera canción que le canto a los temas eh, que están ahí en las redes sociales o, o de dominio público. Había tenido muchos éxitos a nivel México, Estados Unidos, eh, con la comunidad latinoamericana. Había tenido algunos número uno en América, en Argentina, en Colombia, pero... La cumbia del coronavirus se hizo global eh, cuando tengo a rusos que la tradujeron cantándola, cuando tengo a gente en Portugal cantándola, cuando tengo gente en Bangladesh bailándola. Entonces ahí sentí que la canción se había globalizado. Mi vida ha cambiado, sí ha cambiado después de la cumbia del coronavirus porque, bueno, pues muchos medios de comunicación, los más importantes, muchos medios de comunicación locales, regionales, estatales e internacionales pues eh, me han estado eh, pidiendo la oportunidad de platicarles ha pasado a raíz del éxito de la canción honestamente mi vida sí dio un giro y aparecer en revistas como eh, Rolling Stone como que una nota mía está en el New York Times claro que sí pienso que la imagen se acrecenta de Mr. Cumbia pero la persona sigue siendo el mismo solo creció el proyecto musical pero yo sigo siendo exactamente la misma persona. Well, Cumbia del Coronavirus is not the first song I composed based on social media memes. I had some success in the U.S. with the Latin American community. I also had number ones in Argentina and in Colombia, but the Cumbia del Coronavirus became global. The moment you had Russians who translated and sang it, when people in Portugal started singing it, when people in Bangladesh were dancing to it, is when I felt the song had gone global and my life had changed. Regional, state, and international media have all been asking me to tell them what's happened because of the success of the song. My life has definitely taken a turn when I'm appearing in magazines like Rolling Stone. But of course, as the image of Mr. Cumbia grows, the person remains the same. 
the musical project grew, but I am the exact same person. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you got started. I know you wanted to be a music artist early on in your life, but how young were you and did you always want to do cumbia? Quisiera saber un poquito más de los días de cuando decidiste ser un artista de música, por favor. ¿Era cumbia la música que siempre querías hacer? Sí, empecé a los 14 años. Mi hermano tenía un grupo musical y me gustaba acompañarlo hasta que un día me dijo que miraba talento en mí y me invitó a trabajar. En la región de donde yo nací es la frontera Tamaulipeca, Laredo, Matamoros, eh, Bronzeville, son ciudades que están conectadas y tenemos muchos artistas eh, incluso hasta internacionales de cumbia por allá. Estoy muy influenciado y la gente me pregunta por qué no hice corridos en vez de cumbias y la verdad es que me fui por la cumbia por un gusto personal, pero también entendí que la cumbia es un idioma eh, mucho más amplio que los corridos por ejemplo, la cumbia se, se disfruta y tiene subgéneros en, en toda Hispanoamérica. Y el corrido es un poquito más de México, más, es más de esa zona eh, de nosotros los mexicanos. Y la cumbia pues sí cobija un gran territorio de prácticamente toda Latinoamérica. Y la prueba de ello pues es la cumbia del coronavirus. Exacto, son diferentes. Tal vez en unas zonas funcionan, en otras no, pero la cumbia... Hay cumbia argentina, cumbia paraguaya, hay cumbia eh, pues de, colombiana, mexicana. Entonces, pues la, ah, siempre está ahí la cumbia, solo cambia la región donde vives. Entonces, por eso de, me decidí por la cumbia, porque yo sabía que un día iba a ser algo que podía conectar con muchísimas personas. Yes, I started at 14 years old. My brother had a band and I liked to tag along until one day he told me he saw talent in me. He invited me to work in the region of my birthplace, the Tamaulipas border towns of Laredo, Matamoros, and Brownsville, Texas. A lot of cumbia artists come from there, and I'm very influenced by them. People do ask me why I did not play corridos instead of cumbias, and the truth is that it's my personal taste, but also because I understood that cumbia has a much broader musical appeal than corridos. Cumbia, for example, is a popular genre throughout Latin America, and the corrido is a little more based in Mexico. Cumbia blankets the larger Latin American territory, and a proof of that is this song. There are differences in the cumbia based on the region, though, in Argentina, in the Paraguayan cumbia, the Colombian cumbia, so that's really why I decided to play cumbia. I knew that one day it would be something that could connect with a larger audience. So are you currently at home with your family? What have you done with your time while you're inside? Entonces, ¿estás ahorita con tu familia? ¿Qué has hecho mientras has estado adentro en la casa? Sí, eh, eso lo tenemos en común todos ahorita, estamos en casa, son millones de personas y curiosamente pasa, pasan dos cosas, que estoy eh, yo siempre cada fin de semana en tours a, en todo Estados Unidos, pero pues ya tenemos semanas que esos eventos están cancelados, estoy más tiempo en casa, estoy más tiempo con la familia, estoy produciendo más y una de las cosas que me llama la atención es que uno quiere ir a aparecer a, a los diferentes canales o cadenas televisivas. He recibido las invitaciones, pero por el problema de, del coronavirus que tenemos que estar eh, pues en casa, aislados. Todas las, no he podido visitarlos. Eh, todas las entrevistas las estoy haciendo vía Skype o algunas por, por medio de, de Facebook. También sí es, es difícil... Ahora la vida de un artista y yo debería estar eh, en muchos lugares ahora visitándolos y haciendo eh, un tour de, eh, de medios de comunicación, 
pero pues lo estamos haciendo desde casa, estamos haciendo como una gira de medios, pero toda, todo ha sido en casa, muy virtual, gracias a las redes sociales, pero sí es, es curioso el contraste entre no estar de, de viaje en mis eventos y, y los tours, hacerlos aquí en casa, los de medios de comunicación. Right now we're at home like millions of other people. I'm almost always out every weekend on tours throughout the U.S., but all events have been canceled for weeks. Now I have more time at home with the family. I am producing more also, and one of the things that strikes me is that I can't appear on different channels or TV channels. Due to the coronavirus problem, we have to be safe. So I was able to do all of the interviews via Skype or through Facebook. It's difficult. The life of an artist should be to travel to many places visiting people, but we are doing the media tour from home. Thanks to social networks, everything has been virtual. But it's a curious thing, the contrast between not traveling and doing it from home. How much production of the songs have you actually been able to do while you've been home? ¿Cuánta producción de las canciones actualmente has podido hacer desde que has estado en casa? En dos semanas he producido cuatro canciones que todas tienen que ver con lo que estamos eh, pasando en estos momentos. Una dedicada a la cuarentena, una dedicada a la, a la falta de papel higiénico, una dedicada a otra campaña, sí, tenemos una muy buena, eh, y una dedicada a la campaña de, de, de Quédate en tu casa, otra la campaña de Lávate las manos, todavía más enfatizada. He producido algunos temas y algunos otros que van para salir, tengo por estrenar eh, un dueto con unos amigos dominicanos. Vamos a introducirnos a la música urbana y la canción se llama Pandemia. En dos semanas he producido cuatro canciones que todas tienen que ver con lo que estamos pasando ahora mismo. Una dedicada a la cuarentena, otra dedicada a la falta de toilet paper y otra para una campaña de nueva. Tenemos una buena que está dedicada a estar en tu casa, una más sobre lavar tus manos. I've produced other songs that are going out soon, including a duet with Dominican friends that we're going to introduce to mainstream music fans. The song is called Pandemic. Have you been approached by higher level producers or record labels now that you are super popular? ¿Has hablado con productores o disqueras de más alto nivel desde que tu popularidad ha aumentado? Sí, se han comunicado algunos, algunos productores muy importantes. Eh, se han comunicado algunos artistas. Y pues yo soy un artista independiente, eh, yo no estoy amarrado con nadie y poco a poco vamos a ir desarrollando duetos con diferentes artistas de diferentes géneros, pero los voy a traer a la cumbia. Curiosamente yo platicaba con mi esposa y mirábamos el boom del reggaetón global, pero yo le decía el día que conozca el mundo realmente la cumbia se va a enamorar de ella y fue lo que pasó con la cumbia del coronavirus, entonces yo a los artistas de, de hip hop o las artistas de, del género, género urbano que están queriendo hacer duetos conmigo, los voy a traer a la cumbia. Yes, some very important producers have reached out, some artists. Since I'm an independent artist, I'm not tied to anyone, so little by little we're developing duets with artists from different genres. But my goal is to bring them all over to Cumbia. I used to talk with my wife about the boom of global reggaeton and told her that the day the world really knows Cumbia, it will also fall in love with it. That's what has happened with the Cumbia of the coronavirus. So for artists of other genres like hip-hop that want us to do a duet, I'll bring them over to Cumbia. I have one last question for you, Ivan. What do you want to tell your listeners, especially those from Latin America who do not understand yet that they have to stay at home and that they have to wash their hands and really just follow the rules still a few months into this pandemic. Te tengo una última pregunta. 
¿Qué le quieres decir a todos los que nos están escuchando, que no están entendiendo todavía, aunque que tienen que quedarse en casa, que tienen que lavarse las manos y que tienen que hacer lo más que pueden hacer para el futuro de sus familias y todos sus amigos y amigas? Sí, tenemos una responsabilidad social. Eh, eh, todo empieza por nuestra familia, nuestra comunidad, nuestro condado, eh, nuestra ciudad y al final de nuestro estado. Entonces eh, tenemos una gran responsabilidad, tenemos que permanecer en casa y siempre estar pendiente de las autoridades. Obviamente los eh, hábitos de higiene son primordiales para poder defendernos de este mal que actualmente tenemos. Entonces hay que entender que es nuestra responsabilidad ser como familia primeramente responsables y entender a los demás miembros de nuestra familia que el futuro o el bien o el mal, el destino bueno o malo está en nuestras manos, literalmente. Yes, we have a shared social responsibility. Everything starts with our family and then with our community, then the county, our city and finally our state. We have a great responsibility to stay at home and to consider the authorities' requests on this issue. Hygiene habits are obviously essential in order to defend ourselves from this evil we are dealing with. We must understand it is our responsibility as a family to understand that our future, our destiny, good or bad, is in our hands. Literally. Coronavirus, coronavirus, 
No se toquen la cara, eviten los amigos. Coronavirus, coronavirus. Usan desinfectante, ese es muy efectivo. the end of the first official Tequeria show. I want to thank our partners at Art19, the company that hosts our content and works with us on marketing, PayB, which will be helping us get donations from all over the world, fingers crossed, and Claro, the executive team at the Tequeria community, especially David Silva, Sashi Jane, Francis Coronel, and Felipe Ventura, who have spent time helping me think through the possible iterations of the show. Thank you also to Dr. Rubio, Naya Sarate, and Mr. Cumbia himself, who all made themselves available to open up about what is going on in their lives at this moment in time. Thank you to Bob Shryock for his voiceover help. And of course, thanks to my business partner, Neil Godbole, for producing this show from his Airship Laboratory studio in the Bay Area and for making it sound awesome. Additional big thanks to our friends, Lauren Hepler, Andrew Fair, Salil Apte, and Jemima Kiss for their help and partnership building points of presence. If this show takes off, you will hopefully be hearing a lot more from them in other podcasts we have planned. If you have questions, suggestions, stories, tips you want me to investigate, or anything else, please email me directly at josefermoso at gmail.com or at contact at pointsofpresence.io. I hope to see your emails lightly nudging up against the 534 emails I've received from now near defunct airlines offering beautiful travel deals none of us can take. And I'm also on Twitter at Formoso and on Instagram at jfermoso. That's J-F-E-R-M-O-S-O. Please follow the main Points of Presence accounts, the Tequeria podcast accounts, and of course the tequeria.org accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and on el Twitter too. And finally, if you like the show, please share it with your friends and family. Like and comment on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the other pod platforms. And if you want to help us continue to produce these shows indefinitely, which we want to do, we'd appreciate your direct financial support. We do have some sponsors, but at the moment, that is not enough to pay for the regular cost of the studio, much less for the time we are taking away from our other professional and personal commitments. You can find the donation app on our site, and we'd really, really appreciate the help. Anyway, thank you for listening, stay safe out there, and see you at the Tequeria. <laughs>